Due to the graphic nature of the personal accounts and content discussed in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Many episodes will include graphic personal accounts and discussions of child sexual assault, domestic violence, physical abuse, rape, sexual situations, and suicide. survivors. Today we're interviewing Sarah. We're excited to have met her and excited for her to tell her story. Today is July 12th and this will be episode 11. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and to be talking to you guys. I've really enjoyed your guys' podcast and I found a lot of help and healing in hearing other people's stories. So I'm hoping that others will find the same in my story. We're so happy to have you here, Sarah. We've talked to you a little bit about being nervous and stuff like that. And so I just want to say it while we're recording that we're more interested in authenticity than making a story sound a certain way. So we think you're going to be fabulous. And I will just hand it over to you. You can start telling us your story. Tell us a little bit about you. All right. Well, like I said, I definitely appreciate this opportunity. And One thing that I wanted to focus on throughout my story is just ending the silence. Obviously, there's so much silence and shame built around sexual abuse. And so often, victims are afraid to talk and and other people involved, family members, are afraid to talk about it. And there's just so much silence built around all of it. And in my opinion, that silence just needs to end. So this is the first time ever that I've told my story in its entirety. People in my family know bits and pieces. And, you know, my husband knows bits pieces. Everyone knows bits and pieces, but I've never told my story from beginning to end in its entirety. So I appreciate this opportunity to do so. So a little bit of introduction. I was born into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My mom's dad was also a member, but he was inactive. So my mom got involved in the young women's group when she was a teenager, and she was baptized as a convert at 14 because her young women's leaders brought her into the church pretty much. She was on the inactive roles, and they fellowshiped her and brought her in. So she was baptized at 14, and then she met my dad when she was, like, 18. And he was not a member, but he converted, and he's very clear about the fact that he converted because my mom would only marry another member of the church. So he joined the church for her. They ended up having five kids, and I was the youngest of five. There were nine years, almost to the day, between my oldest brother and I. So... The way my story begins, it sounds kind of weird, but, you know, we're telling the story. One joke that my parents always had when I was little 
was that I had a spankable butt and they would joke about it. They would, you know, it was just, they were just teasing me. They weren't inappropriate or anything. It was just, oh, you know, Sarah has a spankable butt and just laughing about it. And I remember the very first time that my oldest brother, like I said, he was nine years older than me. The very first time my older brother molested me, I was like maybe three or four years old. I'm not exactly sure of the age, but I know I was young. Thinking back on it, it's a little weird to me because that puts my brother only at like 12 or 13 years old. But, you know, at the time he was much older than me. He was someone to look up to. He was my older brother. Now being an adult, I'm like 12 to 13 was really young. And sometimes I wonder what led him to start molesting me. But on the other hand, like you've said in previous podcasts, it doesn't matter. You know, his situation was doesn't matter. Just the fact of the matter is that he did molest me. I remember the first time I was wearing these pink corduroy pants and a black t-shirt and I had my teddy bear. And I feel like my mom was home, but I'm not certain. I know a lot of times we were home without our parents because we had older siblings that would help take care of us, but I feel like my mom was home. I remember him calling me down to his room and I asked what he wanted and he just called me. He's like, because I said so, come here. So I went to his room and I laid down on the bed with him and we were looking at a book and he had put his hand on my butt And he said, you really do have a spankable butt, huh? You know, calling back to what my parents were teasing me about. And so it it felt weird, but I obviously didn't have words for it. So from there it went on. The molestation went on for a couple years fairly regularly. It was never mean. He was never rude to me or he was never forcible, but I also didn't know it was bad. I was young. I knew it was a secret, but I didn't know it was bad. At one point when I was about six... I had started acting out with some of my friends, which I think is pretty normal with kids that have been molested. They act out with their friends. Mm -hmm. And at one point, one of my friend's moms caught her daughter and I acting out in that way. And um, she had told my mom and I was there when she told my mom. And it was the first time that I heard it put into words. It was like the first time I had words for what was going on. And she had told my mom, quote, that they were taking off their clothes and fooling around. And I clearly remember that because it was the first time I had words. And I remember not having words for it before that. So it wasn't much later. I mean, my mom had talked to me about it a little bit when my friend's mom had approached her, but I didn't tell her that that's what was happening with my brother. I just said, that's just what we were doing. And there was no reason. But then it wasn't much later, maybe a couple weeks that my mom caught me in my brother's room. And she took me into the kitchen and asked me what was going on. And I used those same words that my neighbor's mom had used, because those were the only words I had, that we were taking off our clothes and fooling around. So at that point, my mom did take action. I'm not sure what all she did, but I know she did report it to the police and she did get me into counseling. However, neither of my parents nor the police removed my brother from the home. He was allowed to continue living at the home. I don't know what legal consequences he had, but I know he did have some, but I know he was able to still live at our house. The abuse did stop for maybe a year or two, but inevitably, because he was still in the home, he still had access to me. Once things calmed down, it started again. And I remember at this point, I was eight, which would put him around 17 years old. This time I knew it was wrong and I knew it shouldn't happen. I had been going to counseling for it. However, I still didn't know how to resist it or how to stop it. This time, the first time it happened again, I was napping on the couch and I woke up to him molesting me, but I had pretended to stay asleep. After that, it became like a normal thing. He would approach only when he thought I was asleep 
and I would pretend to stay asleep throughout it. This went on for a couple months this way. Then, at one point, he called me on it. He said that he knew I was pretending to sleep and that I must be enjoying it. And, <laughs> yeah. At that point, I, I knew I couldn't pretend anymore. I knew it was wrong. I knew that I needed to tell my mom that it was happening again. And so I left the room and I went and I called my mom at work. Now, as an adult I, and a mother, I couldn't imagine getting that call while I'm at work from my daughter saying that, you know, she's being molested again. But I did. I called my mom and told her what was going on. And my brother took the phone from me at that time and said he was going to go turn himself in. And so I would only assume that he was on some sort of probation because he knew that he would have to go back to the police if it were to happen again. So he told my mom that he was going to go turn himself in and he hung up the phone. She immediately called back and I answered and she, she told me to have him wait till she got home, but he had already left. He had already left the house and went to the police and turned himself in. At that point, I know he did get into more legal trouble. Again, I don't know how much. This is where I tried to get the court records, but it's really hard to get court records. I thought it would be a little easier being a victim, thinking, you know, I have victim's rights, but also because he was a juvenile at the time, I think it's harder to get those court records. So I don't know what kind of trouble he got into, but I know he did go to juvenile detention for a little while. And then after that, he wasn't allowed to come back to our house. He ended up living with my grandparents. So after that, life went back to normal pretty much. It was it was different. All my other siblings knew what had happened. I know that he did molest a couple of my other siblings to some degree, but not to the same degree as me. I do remember being interviewed by the police, the detectives, to get details, and I know my siblings were as well, but I don't know what to degree. And then I don't have any good segue between that and moving on from my story. <laughs> the sleeping thing, acting like you're asleep, Mm -hmm. is that's something that I did too. And until this year, when I really started talking about the details of what happened, I did not realize how many similarities these stories have with each other. Yeah. So, I mean, that must be a documented safety mechanism or defense mechanism. Um, freeze. It's freeze. But, there's fight or flight, yeah. so you either put your fists up and you fight the person, or you run away, or you freeze. And usually kids, yeah. from what I understand, from how we've been talking, it sounds like usually kids freeze. Yeah, and a lot of times, like I said, they don't have words and they don't understand. Even at the point when I knew it was wrong, I didn't really know how to fight back or how to get out of the situation. Yeah. So, yeah. Just freeze, pretend I was asleep, and pretend it wasn't happening. Yeah. As a child, the person that's abusing you is much bigger than you. So you're helpless to escape. A bigger brother, I mean, even though he wasn't abusive physically, you knew there was a power difference between you and him. And so as a kid, you do what you need to to protect yourself. Yeah, I think that's why this is so important to be doing a podcast like this where we're telling the stories because other people can hear the different things that they did as well that maybe they felt guilty about. I know I felt guilty. I thought that I had somehow participated since I didn't fight. So it's really important to be talking about it. Yeah. For sure. And I definitely appreciate what you guys are doing here. It's amazing. Well, thank you. <laughs> so moving on, this is the part of the story that I actually still have trouble telling. And it's one that I've really only told one or two people. And, um, even that I haven't really 
told it in any sort of detail. Around the time I turned 12, my dad molested me a couple times, and it was super confusing. So we'll get into that. My mom, obviously, it would be confusing no matter what the situation is. Before you go on, do you think that your dad molested your brother? Did that ever? I have no idea. That's one thing, like, I would hope not, but I don't know. He also didn't show any interest in molesting me till I was a teenager or, you know, pubescent. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know the situation. Also, it was confusing to me because my dad obviously knew what had happened with my brother. He knew I had been through that. So I didn't know why he was doing this with me. The first time, my mom worked nights. And like I was telling you, Kendra, she was a nurse. So she worked nights. And our house was an old house and it had no air conditioning. We're in Ohio and it gets really hot and humid in the summer and so summer nights were really uncomfortable and it was it was hard to sleep but my parents room had a window air conditioning unit and a lot of times us kids would go in and sleep on the floor in my parents room during the summer so that we could be in the air conditioning but one night my mom was at work and I just happened to be the only one of us kids sleeping on the floor in the room and my dad had told me he was like hey, since your mom's at work, you can sleep in the bed, which I thought was super cool because it's a lot more comfortable than the floor. But I laid down in bed, and like as I was dozing off, he had tried to kiss me, and I gave him a quick peck like you would give your dad. But he then told me, he was like, well, give me a real kiss. And it freaked me out, obviously, and I felt like I knew what was happening, so I got up and left the room. But I never told anyone because what had actually happened, I didn't really understand what had actually happened. Another time I had gone to work with him, you know, like the one of those take your daughter to work days. And while we were there at one point, we were alone. And he told me that he had noticed that I had been beginning to grow and develop and that I was getting a nice shape. And that was uncomfortable the way he said it. And later on that day, he had like grabbed my butt and almost and like pressed me against a wall where I couldn't get away. But I squirmed out and I walked away. And again, nothing happened and nothing was ever said of it. And then the last time, like nothing seriously happened, but it's because I had been in that situation before and I knew not to let it happen. So the last time I was napping on the couch and I woke up to him, to my dad touching my chest. And this really freaked me out. And I actually confronted him about it. And at that point, you know, I was 12. I had been through this situation before and I confronted him and I said, how could you be doing this? You know what I've been through with my brother. Why are you doing this? And at that point, he actually laughed it off. It shocked me. He laughed it off and he said, you're going to be okay. He played it off like he was testing me to see if I would do anything in that situation. And after that, Nothing was ever said of it and nothing happened again. I think he knew that I was going to stand up to him. But I wonder, you know, if this had happened with anyone else, like you said, like, did he molest my brother? Did he molest any of my other siblings? Did he molest anyone outside of our family? I know at one point, I remember when I was a teenager, there was a girl in our church who, she was an older teenager, and she accused my dad of propositioning her. And my dad denied it. You know, like she accused him of of asking her to have sex with him. And my dad denied it, just said that, you know, he never actually said that he never would. And no one really believed her. And of course, now as an adult thinking back on it, I believe her. And I don't know whatever came of it. I don't think anything ever came of it because he never got in trouble. But again, with the, the silence and people not believing victims, I wonder how many other people were harmed because of that. Can I say something too? Absolutely. So I've taken a personal safety 
uh, class and I actually got my concealed carry permit. And one of the things that they talk about is they call it an interview. And it's something that happens, sexual predators, kidnappers, murderers, a lot of times they'll do what they call an interview where they're gauging how much you're going to fight back. So like, for example, a random man comes up and asks you what time it is. And it could just be innocent and be a random man, but in the personal safety classes, you were taught to stop anyone from approaching you any closer than 10 feet and not to answer questions like that because it part of the interview process to gauge if you are a submissive person and that if you will submit and how close that they can get to you, and then it usually progresses from there. And it happens a lot with sexual abuse, too. It's called grooming. Mm -hmm. But you can also have these little interview experiences where they're pushing the boundary and seeing how far that they can get with you. And then, of course, you're gaslit and told that it was all in your head or it wasn't really anything. So it becomes confusing. So I just thought that that was really important to point out, too, that that those experiences were your dad gauging how far he could push you before you would push back. Yeah, I absolutely see that. You know, in hindsight, I absolutely see that. And like you said, with the gaslighting, it makes it so confusing because it's almost like I, I, I never did tell my mom. I never did really tell anyone at the time what had happened because I didn't really know what had happened. You know, nothing actually had happened but that's because I had stopped it. And then it was like, I felt like I couldn't say anything, especially the way he played it off as if he were testing me. You know, it was like, well, I, I don't know, I guess that's what it was. But as an adult, I totally see that that's not what it was. It was absolutely the grooming like you were talking about. Yeah, it happens with sexual harassment too at work. You say, well, you're being inappropriate. And the next thing you know, they're saying something like, do you really think I'd be interested in you? It was mm -hmm. a joke. Come on, can't you take a joke? So there's method that abusers use that work. Part of it is the silence where when we don't talk about it, we don't realize that a lot of times these stories have similar aspects to it of the grooming, the gaslighting, or interview process. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's really important to point out that. Yeah, for sure. So there's a training on a website called Darkness to Light, and it is really comprehensive. It's one that I've done to address sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, and recognizing it. And it was actually really interesting being an abuse survivor myself. I was watching it in from that lens, but it also is really good for people that want to help to prevent this from happening anymore. And I actually learned quite a bit from it. That's awesome. Yeah, I wrote that down. I'm going to definitely look into that. I hadn't heard of that before. Well, I guess we can go on. I wish that my story ended there, but it doesn't. Around the time when I was 13, I had a very close friend of mine, and I would stay the night at her house all the time. She and I would always stay the night at each other's houses. And she had an older brother who was 18. And I thought he was very, you know, I was 13. I was a boy crazy 13-year-old. And I thought he was very attractive and very cool. And so... After my friend would go to sleep, he and I would talk often and we would just get to know each other. And I felt so special because, like I said, I found him attractive. I thought he was cool. I was 13, you know, thought that I was super cool. 
But it didn't take long that those talks turned into kissing and making out and other sexual acts. I never viewed it as abuse because I thought he was cool. I didn't see it as molestation. I found him attractive. But now looking back on it as an adult, he was 18 and I was 13. That was not okay. I was not old enough to give consent of any kind. And he was plenty old enough to know that that wasn't okay. (laughs) And we had never had intercourse, but he did try. He pushed the envelope a couple times. And I would say no, because I didn't want to. And he would try to push it anyway. This happened a couple times. I would start to get a little loud about saying no. And that's when he would stop because he was afraid that I'd wake the other people up in the house. But this went on for probably about six months. You know, I kind of saw him as a boyfriend. You know, like I said, I found him attractive, thought he was cool. But I knew that we shouldn't, that I shouldn't talk about it, that it had to be a secret. But being a teenager, I wrote it down in my journal. You know, I told my journal all about it. And my mom, well, actually, my parents found my journal and read it, which I'm glad they did. But, you know, my mom sat sat me down and talked to me. I remember my dad being super mad, which, of course, confused me after, you know, what had gone down with him, why he would be mad about this other guy doing things, but whatever. But my mom sat me down and talked to me about it. And now, looking back, I don't understand why, but my parents never turned him in. They absolutely should have, because like I said, he was 18, 19 years old at the time, and I was 13. You know, what he did was absolutely illegal, and my parents did nothing more than forbid me from staying the night at their house again. Like, I couldn't stay the night there anymore. But they didn't turn him in. Did you ever find out why they didn't turn him in? No. And that's one thing, like, I've wanted to ask my parents, and I wonder... Because I know that my mom was really good friends with their mom. So I wonder if, like, she just didn't want to put them through that. Thought that she was protecting me just by not letting me stay the night there anymore. That's all I could think. But I do remember one point, shortly before my friend and I had become friends, they had moved to our location. And I remember my friend telling me about another girl where they had moved from was accusing her brother. And this, this other girl where they moved from was 12. She was accusing her brother of having made her pregnant. And I remember my friend and her family saying, there's no way that he could have done that. Of course, I knew he could have. And he probably did. And he was probably guilty of that. But again, I don't think he ever faced any repercussions. Obviously, I'm not the only teenage girl he preyed on. I'm probably not the only one. And if my parents, you know, I wish if my parents had just turned him in, I wonder how many people would have been protected. How many other girls would have been protected? Mm -hmm. That's a common feeling. I feel that too. But about the church turning my stepdad in, about my mom turning him in, and then later it became my responsibility. Like I was feeling guilty that I didn't speak up as an adult and go and do what needed to be done to get him to face consequences because I was old enough to do that. But it's scary when you're an adult and you have kids and you're married and you have so many things going on that it's hard to actually tell. You know, that's why it's so common for all of us to not come out and start telling our story until we're in our 40s, 50s, 60s, and sometimes never at all. 
And then when we do actually tell our story, a lot of times the statute of limitations is up. There's no consequences for this person. It's us against them, our word against theirs. And where's the proof? And then it becomes an organizational problem where the organization has been found to be protecting pedophiles and protecting sexual perpetrators. So, you know, it's just awful and it needs to stop. And that's, I guess that's part of the reason that Dana and I are doing this, you know, so this can stop. I wanted to say, too, that it wasn't until I was actually talking with Kendra where I had the realization about similar things with me. I got married when I was 15, and I've always joked around that my dating years were from 12 to 14. Mm -hmm. That was a joke, you know, but the older boys would corner me and the whole thing, too, and, and I always just thought those were my dating years, but... I was not old enough at all for those boys to be messing around with me like Mm -hmm. that. And I wrote it in my journal also, and my parents found it also. And I actually got in trouble. I got in really big trouble. I ended up burying my journals after that. I, I literally dug a hole and made myself a little map, and I buried my journals. And then right before I got married, I went and dug up those journals, and I burned them. I lit them on fire. And I wish so badly that I had them now. But, but this is an, a brand-new realization for me that, oh, wow, all of those experiences were not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I did the same thing. I burned my journals. And there's something mm-hmm. cathartic about burning them. But also, like you said, now we don't have them. The statue of limitations thing, that's the same. Like, in having listened to your guys' podcast, it made me think, well, maybe I should turn them in now. And I looked back and the statute of limitations is way gone, you know? So, yeah, I could turn them in, but what would happen? I don't know. It's still something to consider. My dad has since passed away, so no turning him in or, or really no use in bringing that to light but never know what this other guy maybe maybe i should yeah well he's probably still doing it he probably has other victims and maybe those other victims are recent victims recent enough that the statute of limitations is not up for them so that's kind of what i think about so what if what if there's others and and if there's so many people coming forward together then there's no way they cannot have consequences well actually i shouldn't say that because they're (laughs) There is a way that they cannot have consequences. And then, you know, you go through this whole process of being in court and having to tell your story and having at risk that they're not going to believe it and the gaslighting that happens in the court system. And so all those things are a lot of reasons why people don't ever come forward and tell their story or turn their perpetrator in because there's no guarantee. They've been practicing for a long time on how to get away with what they're doing and have probably rehearsed in their head how they would get away with it if they were arrested or what they would say. So it's tough. It really is. For sure. It's a broken system. It is. It is. And like, I mean, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but if more people would talk about these things, it wouldn't take people so long to come out. If my parents had been more willing to talk about things and turn him in because they knew they knew it was illegal, they told me it was illegal. But they opted to protect him and his family over protecting me and anyone else that he may victimize. It would have been a lot easier to turn him in then than it is now, you know? That brought up a memory for me, like just now. My boyfriend before my husband, he was the same age as my husband, but I was a lot younger. 
And when they read my journals, that boyfriend stuff that I had done with him was in that journal. And so they forced me to break up with him. And the way that they forced me was they told me that if they saw me with him again, that they would turn him in for statutory rape. And so they knew, they did know, but I didn't want him to be turned in, obviously. So I broke up with him. Yeah. So parents do know sometimes. Yeah. It's just so fucked up. Yeah. Hopefully the majority of parents go to bat for their kids, but so often they protect the perpetrator and they protect the guilty party more than they do the victim. And I see that within the church a lot too, which, you know, we'll get to, but they protect the the perpetrator a lot more than they do the victim. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more room within the church for perpetrators than there is for victims. Definitely. So, yeah, going on through high school, my high school years were, were pretty typical and I was very boy crazy the whole time. I was definitely promiscuous, which I know, Kendra, you don't like that word. <laughs> it's funny that you guys say that. Like, I just realized in the conversation with Dana how we call ourselves promiscuous because that's what we were told as teenagers. Yeah. And the reality is, is that teenagers have this sexual drive that's normal and natural and calling them promiscuous or shaming them out of this behavior or these bodily functions that are that are normal and natural instead of helping them to understand them and helping them to control them in a way that is healthy. It's just so prevalent in the church and so prevalent in a lot of cultures and societies, but really I can only speak to the church because that's what I grew up in and seeing that yeah. happen over and over and over again and hearing it over and over and over again and believing that I was promiscuous. We got to just stop that tape from playing in our own head. So that's my thought. It doesn't hurt me or scare me or make me sad or anything like that. It just, it's just one of those things that I was seeing, you know? Also, girls are called promiscuous, Mm -hmm. but boys, you never hear that a boy is promiscuous. It's true. Never. It's true. Yep. That's so true. Honestly, like I was being a, a normal teenage girl, you know, with, with normal drives. And then also like, I clearly remember growing up the way that I did having been assaulted so many times by multiple different guys. I remember feeling like being sexual was the only way that I could show love. Mm -hmm. And it was the only way that I could show interest in these boys. And, and I felt like it was the only way to get love in return. So while it was definitely, you know, natural and normal for my age to, to be more active in the sexual manner, <laughs> well, it was definitely normal, but I, I also remember, like, I felt like that was the only way that I could get attention from boys. Mm-hmm. And like you were saying, it was this constant cycle, this guilt and shame cycle constantly, like... I was always in the bishop's office confessing and repenting, and they made me read that Miracle of Forgiveness book, which oh, is yeah. terrible, yeah, is. <laughs> which it is, is victim shaming to mm-hmm. the max, which, of course, you know, made me feel guilty for everything that I had been through as well. Yeah. And it was just this constant cycle of, you know, confessing, repenting, messing up again, confessing again. And these bishops were always there to help me repent, but they never once asked why. They never delved into my past. They, they're they not mental health providers. They wouldn't know to delve into my past. They wouldn't know that that's why that's the only way that I could feel that I could get love or affection. Mm-hmm. They never once suggested that maybe I seek mental health counseling. They just were like, here, read these things and pray and it'll be okay. And then the yes. next month I'm in their office again. 
Yeah. And it's your fault and you're you're the one that's guilty and you need to change your behavior. The thing is, there's a handbook, right? There's a handbook for bishops. Why aren't things like that in there? If somebody comes in and they're sexually promiscuous, you know, the word that they use, then why don't they have some of those questions? Like, are you okay? Are you safe at home? Are you being abused? The reality that I've come to is that they don't want to know. They don't want to know because then they would have to do something about it. A lot of times that means that it's going to not look good for the church because families in the church don't do those kind of things. Families in the church don't have those kind of things happen to them. And never would a priesthood holder abuse a child. It's ridiculous that they have these belief systems because it attracts people to this religion who want to get away with it. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And and that's another problem within the church is, you know, I always loved that the church had lay ministry with unpaid clergy. But I've learned that that's dangerous because these bishops get called into being bishops or stake presidents with no training. And they barely give them any training. Pretty much the only training they give them is, hey, call our legal office if something happens. And people go to them for guidance and for counseling, and they think they know what they're doing, but they don't. (laughs) They have no idea what they're doing. They have the power of discernment. So they're supposed to believe that they know what they're doing and that it's better than any training that they could ever receive. And it's obviously not. Yeah. They do not. Yeah. Well, thankfully, as I grew and... I went to college. I got married when I was 20, and I was so lucky to get the husband that I did. With all of the boys that I went through throughout high school, I'm so lucky that I ended up with my husband because he has been amazing. We've been married for the last 19 years, and he has been so kind and gentle and helped me heal through everything. You would think with the past that I had that I wouldn't be able to have a healthy, normal relationship with my husband, but I absolutely can because thankfully I somehow lucked out and married such a great guy. And obviously when I married him, I, I thought he was a great guy or I wouldn't have married him, but he was so much more than I imagined. And I'm, I'm grateful that I've had him because he's been very healing for me. He's been very helpful for me. So my husband and I had two kids and, you know, looking at my family, my older sister had four kids. And again, I wish my story was over, but it wasn't. When my daughter was three, at one point I was talking to my dad and he had mentioned that my sister was having a hard time with her oldest son, which was my nephew, but he wouldn't go into details, but he mentioned that she might need my help. A couple months later, my husband and I went camping with our kids and we took my sister's sons along with us. And at one point, I looked on one of my nephew's iPods, and they were, I don't know, 11 and 13. But I looked on one of their iPods, and I found, you know, history searches for porn in the uh, search history. And some of it, like, you know, how you can see what they're searching for, like what words they put in. Some of it, it looked like they were looking for child porn. Uh. Yeah. And so I called my sister and I told her, and I was like, look, you need to know that they're looking at this. I don't know if you know this, but even though that they're minors, they could get in trouble for searching for this. They could get in legal trouble. And she kind of pushed it off, but she didn't act surprised when I told her and she said that they would deal with it. My husband works in IT. I told her that he could help her find ways to have blocks on the internet and things so that they they wouldn't be able to search things or they would get alerted when they search things. But she just kind of brushed it off. And not long later, we were at a family dinner. My family would get together every Sunday for a family dinner. 
And so that was me and my parents and my siblings and all of our, you know, all of our kids, all the grandkids. So at one point, my sister said she needed to talk to all of us and she sent the kids to play. I remember my sister saying that she didn't want to have any more lies and she didn't want to hide anymore. So of course I was interested. I was like, what's going on? And she said that a while back, she had caught her oldest son molesting one of her daughters. It was like my story on repeat. She said that she had reported it and she got her daughter into counseling, but she didn't remove her son from the home. I just don't get it. It was like my story all over again because she had caught him molesting her daughter, turned him in, got him counseling, but didn't remove him from the home, said that she would be able to watch them to make sure it didn't happen again. But she said she was talking to us because it was about to get a lot worse. And she told us that she found out that he did continue molesting his sister. And then he also molested a girl at church. And he also molested a few other kids as well. So that night, of course, my husband and I talked to our kids and found out that he had also molested my daughter. It was only once, and it was, not that that makes it okay, but it was only once, and it was over the clothing, but it was touching nonetheless. And I called my sister, and I told her, and she begged me not to report it because he was already in enough trouble. Well, I absolutely reported it, and this put a big rift between my sister and I, but I don't care, you know? <laughs> my, my daughter was yeah. molested. I'm going to report it. Like I said, my sister got mad at me because it made it worse for him, but she couldn't see that I didn't make it worse for him. He made it worse for him. She made it worse for him by protecting him. I told her that I didn't understand how, after everything I went through, she was there for all of it, how she would be upset that I would report it. Because I felt unprotected by my family my whole life. My mom thought she was helping by getting me counseling and turning in my brother, but she didn't remove the problem from the home. She thought she was protecting me by not letting me go to my friend's house anymore, but that didn't protect other kids. My sister thought she was protecting her daughter by reporting it and getting her counseling, but she was just protecting her son. So often it seems like they try to protect both, but it's at the cost of the victim. I don't know what consequences he faced. I know that he did end up going to juvenile detention. I know that he did have some charges brought against him. I don't know what consequences he faced within the church. I do know, I remember the uh, stake president called me at one point. This was about eight years ago that this happened. But the stake president called me at one point wanting me to give him the details of what happened with my daughter. And looking back on it, now I see that he was trying to see if the church was liable because one of the kids at church were molested within the walls of the church. So they were trying to see if, if the church would be legally responsible. I thought it was weird. I was like, why is the stake president asking me these details? But at the time I was a believing member and I gave him the details, you know. I do know my nephew just recently got married in the temple and that bothers me. Maybe he repented, but I don't care. I feel like he's still at risk of being a predator. Getting in trouble didn't stop him once, and it didn't stop him twice. So I hope things are better, but I don't know. So that's my main message that I wanted to share, is just to stop the silence and stop protecting the abuser. It's so much easier to be silent. I understand that. But it's always at the cost of the victim. And if we just start speaking out, if we start talking about it, if we start calling the abuse what it is, then more people yeah. will find their voice, more people will find their words. How are you with your sister now? Yeah, my sister and I have a, have a good relationship now. It's still a little strained. Whenever we have family get-togethers, she'll ask if my nephew can come. 
which I tell her he can, but he has to stay where everyone can see him. He has to stay in the main area. But our relationship's better now. It was pretty strained there for a while. Obviously, I wasn't going to back down with the fact that I did the right thing by reporting and that she did the wrong thing by staying silent and trying to hide as much as she could, thinking she was protecting her son, but it just made it worse for everyone else. Yeah, but things are better now with my sister, at least. But this is what led into my faith crisis as well, and my faith transition out of the church, which I feel like it should have happened a lot earlier than it did. But just this past April, I was questioning a lot of what the church was teaching, and I reached out to a friend of mine who pointed me towards podcasts that might help. And... The first podcast I listened to was Natasha Helfer on Mormon Stories, and she had mentioned Sam Young and the story with Sam Young. I had never heard of Sam Young before. I don't know how, but somehow the church keeps so much quiet that they don't want their membership to know. And I think it's the whole idea of don't look at things that aren't faith-promoting. It keeps you from seeing things that you should absolutely see. The whole thing with Sam Young was huge, and I can't believe that I had never heard of it before. So I googled Sam Young, and the first thing that came up was Protect LDS Children. And I got onto that website, which is Protect Every Child, which, you know, he's expanded it beyond LDS, which is fantastic, because this is an ongoing problem in many churches. And I read story after story after story of stories that were like mine, or stories of people that were children that were abused at the hands of church leaders, or children that weren't believed, perpetrators that were protected by the church, story after story after story. And at that point, I was just done with the church. There is no way the one true church would protect perpetrators like that and not protect victims. And the more that I read the stories and the more that I reflected on my own story, it showed me that there's no room in the church for victims. There really isn't because they're not heard. They're not listened to. You're a liability. Yeah, absolutely. Which is awful. I feel like I should have come to that realization a lot earlier, but you know. Yeah. I think I I feel that same way, yeah. So, that was my story. I feel like it was a lot. It's it's good. Tell us about your faith transition. Like, what specifically did you decide was not true versus did you struggle with things that maybe were still true? Like, something that I think about is there's a quote out there, the celestial kingdom is not something that you want to be wrong about. So, people will stay and live in this religion, keep living with these people they don't relate to, and it becomes kind of a personal hell for them. But they don't want to be wrong about the afterlife. They don't want to be wrong about heaven. They don't want to be wrong about this being the one true church. And the one true church thing makes it so that people will stay. Yeah, well, my husband is a convert to the church, and recently he and I have really not liked the culture within the church and the culture of the people that are so fake, like they put on a good face and they don't want to show the imperfections and they act holier than thou and just that whole culture. And we're in Ohio. I know it's a lot worse in Utah, (laughs) but the culture within the church, we couldn't stand, but we were putting up with it because, you know, the gospel is perfect. The people are not, I hate that saying now, hate it. I hate it too. Yeah. But that was when I started questioning a little more, and then somehow I ended up on ex-Mormon TikTok. (laughs) You know how that goes. And it really presented a lot of questions. And then that's when I reached out to my friend, and she gave me a couple resources, like the Mormon Stories podcast, some different podcasts, as well as some support groups on Facebook. And through those, I found so many different resources 
and learning about Sam Young. At that point, I was done with the church, but I continued researching, and that's when I delved into the CES letter. The CES letter is usually what does a lot of people in, but I was mentally out before I even read that. And that opened up a lot of explanations for me about church history. That even showed me, well, I think it was Hinckley that said, either it's true or it's not, you know, that dogmatic approach. And that dogmatic approach that I was taught my whole life, either it's true or it's not, I was always on, well, it's true. Well, then suddenly it wasn't. If Joseph Smith isn't a prophet, then nothing else is true. And, And I struggled, and I still don't know completely what I believe, but I also feel like I'm in a place of that's okay. It's okay to live in the gray area. Within the Mormon Mm -hmm. church, we are so right, wrong, black, white, this, that. Whereas there's so much gray area, and the gray area can be beautiful. And it's so much more relaxing living in that gray area. My husband, I was just talking to him the other day. He's not sure where he stands yet with the church, but he's definitely okay with taking a step back because, like I said, he hated the culture as much as I did. And he told me the other day, he said, I'm not sure where I stand with the church, but it's amazing how much more relaxed you are, and I don't feel like I'm walking on eggshells around you anymore. And I didn't realize that I gave him that feeling before, but often people within the church, like I said, it's either right or wrong. And when I felt like he did anything remotely, wrong I would attack him almost I know that sounds bad but he said he doesn't feel that anymore and he sees how much more relaxed and happy I am without that dogmatic approach so I don't know where I am now but I know the church isn't true Yeah, my husband and I had a really rocky relationship for such a long time and I always believed that I was right that I was the one that was right that he was ruining our marriage, that he was ruining our chances at eternal salvation. And I had said multiple times, and this is terrible, but I've said multiple times that I would choose the church over him, that I would choose the church over our relationship because I was more interested in my eternal salvation than I was in trying to make things work between us because I knew I was right. I knew that the church was right. I knew that that was the way we were supposed to be living. And when I did leave, I felt terrible. I realized that I was wrong, that he has been so patient for 18 years of our marriage where he still went to church with us intermittently. He tried to support being in the church. He even took callings as far as like the scout program so that he could participate, but didn't believe. Like he didn't want to be there. He usually read a book when he was there. And we were not seeing eye to eye. So anything that he would think or do that was outside of the framework of the church and the beliefs in the church that are so rigid, I would do the same thing. I would attack him. I would be suspicious. I would be paranoid. I would be worried that he was doing things that were going to prevent him from ever coming back or from being a member again. And he never even had that in his mind as something that he wanted to do. He wasn't planning on coming back. So when I left, I still have this guilt and shame about the way I treated him and that he's been really gracious about it, but he was not wrong, that he was right. And he stuck around and he waited for me to leave. And I don't know that he ever really believed that I was ever going to leave. And so he was willing to accept me as I was. But as a Mormon, I was not willing to accept him as he was. I wanted him to change. I wanted him to fit the mold. I wanted him to be the priesthood holder. I wanted him to 
do all these things that were just not part of who he was, but I wanted him to change. Yeah. And that was the first, like when, when I first came to the realization that the church wasn't true, I immediately saw that there were times in our marriage that I was outright abusive to my husband, mm-hmm. holding the church against him. Yeah. You know, anything you say or do will be used against you. And I did that. And I didn't see it until I saw that the church wasn't true. And that was when I first told him that I didn't believe the church anymore. The first thing I did was apologize. And I said, I'm sorry. And he called me on it. There were there were times that I told him that, you know, pretty much I would choose the church over him. And I told him, I'm sorry. That happens so often because of the whole right, wrong, black, white of the church. It's so damaging to couples like that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't oh, yeah. see it beforehand that I had been abusive in that respect. But absolutely. And I, and I don't think I'm alone in that. I'm sure there's lots of us out there. Lots of us. And hopefully this will help them to see that it's the church that's the common denominator. It's the church that's the issue in a marriage. And people either are told to get a divorce and find somebody else that is going to hold the priesthood and is going to be an honorable member of the church and pay their tithing. Of course, that's always in there. (laughs) Or even if their marriage is otherwise good and things could be salvaged by both of them leaving the church, the church does not want that. They want the one member who's still a believing member to stay in. Even my husband and I were told by our state president that uh, we should get a divorce. I was told that we should get a divorce, and my husband is still angry at that state president because it was somebody that he trusted, and it was awful for him to have that be what the advice was from that state president. For me, I left when I was 20. I'm 46 now, and with our first baby, we got her blessed, and my husband was not allowed to stand in the circle to bless her because he didn't have the priesthood. And also his dad came, and I love his dad so much. He's been such an important person to me in my life. But he's like a mountain man type. He's got the big, long beard. He smokes. You know, he's just a cute, like, mountain man guy. When he walked into the church, everyone was whispering about him being there. And I sat there and felt so uncomfortable while my grandpa Kimball had come down and a bunch of my uncles to bless my daughter. And I looked at that circle and just about everyone was a giant asshole while my husband and my father-in-law had to sit in the pews like unworthy losers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it was that experience that started me really questioning the church. And when I had my second child, I knew I was going to have to make the decisions about that. And I would not put my husband through that again. And that's when I started questioning the doctrines and stuff. But thankfully, we did get out early. So sometimes for me, it seems like it's a really long ways away. It's still part of me, though. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's definitely something like once you're in it, especially if you grew up in it, it's always going to be part of you. What I've been thinking of is, Without the church, I wouldn't have my husband or my kids, and I wouldn't trade them for the world. And so the church has served its purpose in my life, and now it's time to move on. You know, it's one of those things that it served its purpose, and now we're done. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with that. When you were in Young Women's, did you have that experience of the the 
chewed gum story or did you go to Young Women's every every Sunday? Oh yeah, I was super active and I was in Young Women's every Sunday and I never had the chewed gum lesson. I remember hearing it, but it was like in a different context. I did have a young woman leader once who taught me a a different aspect that she was like the whole idea of the $20 bill. You know, who wants this $20 bill? We all wanted it. And then she crumbled it up. Who wants it now? Well, we still want it. You know, she threw it on the floor and stomped on it. Who wants it now? We all wanted it. And she was telling us that our value is inherent regardless. So she was a really good leader in that telling us no matter what happens in our life, we still have value. You know, she didn't go as far as I've heard other people have that same lesson. And then they end up ripping the dollar saying, oh, well, now you have no value. She didn't go that far. She was really good. Um, But I do remember one lesson we had that was talking about sexual purity. And they were saying that anytime you have a sexual experience with anyone, it invites them into your life. They were saying that when you get married, you know, you're marrying your husband, but anyone that you ever had any experiences with, are it's like they're lined up there as well. Pretty much saying that you'll never get to get rid of those experiences. And I remember that was harmful to me because I had so many experiences that were out of my control. You know, and, and their point of that story was to say, you only want your husband standing there. You don't want to have any history. And... That was harmful to me because I was like, well, no matter who I marry, I'm going to have a history. And, you know, going through high school, feeling like that was the only way that I could receive love from from guys, you know, it messed me up. (laughs) It definitely messed me up. Yeah. That's terrible. That's one reason why the the church really needs to pull back on some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff. I feel like the church needs to not talk about sexual purity at all. (laughs) That that needs to be parents teaching and schools teaching. I think sex ed in school is fantastic. But the whole purity culture is so damaging. Modesty culture, purity culture. And that's, you know, when I was saying how toxic the culture of the church is, And I was saying how much my husband and I hated that. It's because of the church, you know, the whole idea, the gospel's perfect, the people are not. Well, the gospel's what makes the people. The gospel what makes that culture. And it's so toxic. The purity, the modesty, the the perfectionism. There were years that I would say, even if the church isn't true, it does so much good that I'll stay in it. But now I see, like, the amount of good they do is, like, teeny, and the amount of bad they do is astronomical. Yeah. But when you're inside of it, when you're in the church and you're going and doing and filling all those expectations that you're supposed to fill, you're so busy that you cannot take a step back and see all of the things like the CES letter. So all of the things that are wrong. And so each time that you're told something that's wrong, you just put it in the back of your mind. Oh, it's just one thing. You know, it's just one thing. It's just one thing. If you're not looking at all of those things together, if you're not looking at all of the problems together, then you're always going to make concessions for what the church does that's harmful. It's never going to be something where you can just walk away. So I think the pandemic actually made a big difference for a lot of people getting that distance away from church. I think there's been another mass exodus from the church because people who have not been going to church, who have been home and isolating and have realized how much happier they are without it. They've realized how much happier their family is. There's less contention in the home. They're not trying to be perfect. I've heard lots of stories like that as well, that 
people are just done with religion. They're done with being told how to live and what to do. So I have a good friend of mine in the church, and we've actually gotten together quite a few times over the pandemic, you know, and the whole shutdown and everything. And she's mentioned, you know, she doesn't know yet that I'm on my way out of the church. I haven't gone public with that. I guess after this, I'll be a little more public, but (laughs) I haven't really gone public yet. And she was pointing out some people that have left the church since the pandemic. And she's like, oh, well, God's just sifting out the the weak ones. You know, he's sifting out the the wheat from the tares. And and the way she put that, it was harmful to me because I know I'm one of those tares that's being picked out, but I'm not. You know, it's I I realized what the church is. And I know like anyone within the church will see me as just one of the casualties, you know, one of the weak ones that just walked away during the pandemic. Yeah. My thought process about the the whole wheat and the tares thing with what's going on in the world right now, the people who are refusing to see logic and refusing to see reality and refusing to get on board with what's happening in the world and only are thinking about magical thinking and everything's going to work itself out in the end. These belief systems that they hold on to with their whole life, but if they were to step away and see that it's all bullshit, like to me, all religion is bullshit. All of it is a way of governing people and keeping people under their control. And while they they may have a good culture um, and a community, and those are great things, if that culture and community, if the entire culture and the entire, entire community is so toxic that these people can't think for themselves because they've been told to be obedient, and then they do as the church tells them, it's so damaging. I didn't even know who I was when I left the church. Like, I can say things like I'm a nurse practitioner. I can say things like I'm a mom. Or I can say things like I'm a wife. But who am I? Yeah. You know, I'm a daughter of God. Well, I don't want to fucking be a daughter of God anymore. I want to be my unique, authentic self. And I could never be that within the confines of the church. I could never be that and be accepted by other people. You know, I've got tattoos. And I've had tattoos for a long time. And you wear shoes that are showing that tattoo on my foot and I'm judged. You feel it, you know, (laughs) you feel it when you walk into that church building. What Dana was saying about her father-in-law, there's a sign outside of every building that says all are welcome, you know, as if it's unconditional. And that is so not true. It's so not true. The most judgmental people, the most judgmental nurses that I've worked with, the most judgmental physicians that I've worked with are ones that are LDS, that cannot see a a patient outside of their behaviors. They can't see a root cause of what's happening with those with these people and their their psyche and their mental health. It's like, oh, you're a drug addict. Oh, you drink alcohol at all. And you're automatically a bad person. You know, you're automatically less worth of less worth than anybody else that is in that building or anybody else that is Mormon. You can't just accept people as they are. You have to see them as somebody you're going to change or see them as somebody who needs to change. When the reality is that the people in the church need to change. They need to completely look at how things are happening in their own lives, how they judge people and can't accept them the way they are. So that was my soapbox. Absolutely. I've joked that Mormonism has taught me all about conditional love. You know, they, they talk about this God that has this unconditional love and the Mormon God, you only get conditional love from the Mormon God. 
and the people, it's all conditional. It's heartbreaking to see, you know, like as soon as someone leaves, they, they lose the love, they lose their friendships or a, a teenager comes out as gay or trans and they lose the love of their parents because yep. that Mormon love is conditional. Whereas I, being a parent, I could not fathom anything that would, you know, make me not love my kids. But so often you see that. Yeah. Yeah. So damaging. In my job, I always would cringe if I had a client or a partner or someone that that was Christian or Mormon. Because without fail, those were my clients who wanted to do things dirty. They wanted Mm -hmm. to lie or they would beat me up for to try to get me to give them extra favors. There would be guilt trips. I hated when I had to do business with Christians and Mormons. Almost yeah. without fail, it was a disaster. And I got to the point where when I would be doing a certain project, I would rather not do the project than have to do it with a Christian or a Mormon. I would be willing to just not even make the money mm-hmm. because it, it it would be so miserable. Were you ever told in the church that people want return missionaries to be working for them or people yeah. want the best employees or Mormons? Have you heard that? Yes. Okay. So after leaving the church, I had a different take on it, that the reason that people love Mormons is because they're unconditionally obedient to the organization because they do what they're told even if it's going to harm somebody else below them they are so programmed we are so programmed to follow authority to be obedient to authority the people that are put in powerful positions or put in management and administrative positions as Mormons only see what their job is. This is generalization, but I see it so often. I see it so often that they're willing to sacrifice their own moral compass, their own ethics to be able to be loyal and and obedient to a company. I've seen it more in Utah than I've ever seen it anywhere. That's so true. So did you go through counseling? What has helped you the most as far as healing? Well, with the abuse, I had counseling only when I was a child. I haven't really had any counseling since. It would probably be good for me to have some counseling. I did start with this faith transition. I did find a life coach. At first I was like, that's so cheesy. Like, what's a life coach do? But I researched her and she seemed to to really know what she was doing. And so I did get some sessions with her and she's been fantastic. She's given me a whole lot of resources. And her name is Leah Young and she has a website. It's Balanced Living with Leah. She used to be a member of the church. Um, She and her husband were excommunicated. Their Mormon Stories episode is amazing. I think everyone in a faith transition should listen to that, especially if they're facing a mixed faith marriage. It is so good. But Leah has been so helpful, giving me different resources and different perspectives on things. A couple of the books that she's given me to read that have been very helpful is first Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. It's a really good book, and it empowers you to be the cause of your own experience. A couple of good quotes from that book. The first one that I really liked was, If there is a sin, it is this, to allow yourself to become who you are because of the experience of others. 
And then another one says, do I wish to be the cause of my experience or the effect of my experience? So Leah's really been helping me live a more intentional way in my life and not to just be thrown around by others, but to be the cause of my own experiences, which has been wonderful. Another really good book that she's given me to read is Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. I haven't finished it yet, but it has so many good insights that I would highly recommend. Do you want to plug anything? Like your TikTok page? I do have a TikTok page. Sometimes I'll upload five videos in a day and then I don't upload again for like another month. But (laughs) um, I am on there. My name on there is and we're done. So it's at and dot we're w-e-r-e dot done. I'd love to have people join me on there. Like I said, sometimes I make lots of videos and then other times I have a long lag where I just enjoy other people's content. Ex-Mormon TikTok is so healing. It's fantastic. (laughs) Absolutely is. It's kind of like this where you listen to other people's stories and you're like, oh yeah, I feel that way too. But they're just short stories, you know? I heard so many similarities between your story and my story and... I think that's an important thing. There are so many patterns and and things that happen that as people listen to it, I I think it will be really good for them. So I'm I'm really grateful you did a great job. I just really want to thank you for doing this. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Like I said, this was the first time that I've told my story in its entirety. And I really appreciate you having the platform for that. There's something very healing about telling your story and then also hearing other stories. And like you said, there's going to be so many similarities to others that I I hope my story can be as healing as some of the other stories I've heard have been for me. It's going to be interesting, you know, when you hear your own voice back talking about it, there's kind of something that happens. It can be a, a little bit shocking but it's also really healing too. So we also hope that this is healing for you and a, and a good experience. And hey, I just want to, real quick, I do want to say that um, Cody Francis's song that you guys use is fantastic. Yeah, I have a Faith Transition playlist and that song is in there because it is fantastic. It, that song alone has been very healing for me. So let them know it's just fantastic. Okay. It really is the perfect song. Mm-hmm. It truly, truly is. I'm excited. <laughs> We're excited too. Thanks for joining us on Latter Day Survivors. You can follow us at latterdaysurvivors.org, on Facebook at Latter Day Survivors, on Instagram at Latter Day Survivors. On TikTok, we each have our own TikTok. Kendra's is Latter Day Survivors. And mine is Latter-day Survivors Dana. That's D-A-Y-N-A. You can follow our Twitter at LD Survivors. You can go to our website at latterdaysurvivors.org and donate. It helps us keep bringing this podcast to you. And we also want to encourage you to follow Cody Francis. You can find him on Spotify and all music streaming services. Go out and support him too. We thank you guys for joining us and we hope that you'll come back next time, that you'll share our podcast and that you'll tell your friends. We are your hosts, Kendra Solani and Dana Brown. 
And as survivors of sexual assault, we wanted to provide a platform for survivors to share their stories. Many survivors of all types of abuse may be able to recognize and relate to the patterns of behavior in the victims, abusers, families, and friends of the stories shared by other survivors on this podcast. Often as we escape oppressive family, religious, and social constructs to a safer place, where we come to see our abuse and all related issues, we are better able to process and begin to heal. We believe that when we share our stories with others, we can also help them to heal. It can take decades for survivors to find the courage to speak about these things. If it is so hard for adults, imagine how difficult it is for a child to speak up. We hope to normalize these discussions so that children can speak to adults earlier. As adults, we must listen and recognize the severity of the abuse, its potential consequences, and the need for action to stop the abuse as early as possible. Just knowing we are not alone, there are other people who have felt and do feel the same or have endured similar experiences in life can remind us that we are not alone in this. Don't give up
tell my story, I'm going to freaking tell it. 